Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are, the thing is upon us, folks. It is October 28th. The election is next Tuesday, November 3rd. It's right around the corner. This is our last regularly scheduled podcast before the election. So it has all come down to this. And, you know, just before we went on air, uh, Kate and David and I were, were, were talking about that from our rough uh, calculations, just kind of talking about it here, it seems like close to half the vote has already happened in early voting. Now, we're looking at some some numbers as of this morning and how many votes have been cast so far. That's always going to lag a touch behind, right? You're not yet going to have the people who voted yesterday afternoon necessarily included in those numbers. And we are measuring that against the total vote from 2016. Now, obviously, it, it is, uh, there's the population of the country is slightly larger than it was four years ago. It is, it seems inevitable that you will have substantially higher turnout, but still you already, if we judge the benchmark as 2016, we already are roughly, you know, um, more or less at halfway, which, uh, you know, that that's a big, big deal. And whether or not, you know, if it ends up being something like 50% of the vote, when we actually kind of know the total number of votes that are going to be cast in 2020, or if it's 60% or whatever, that is a pretty big deal because that means a big, big, big part of the election is already baked, has already happened. Um, and for those votes, doesn't matter what happens tomorrow or Friday. It's done. It's already happened. Uh, and that is, that's been something that has been creeping up on us in recent cycles, as the as the early vote becomes a bigger and bigger thing, uh, you know, y- you guys uh, talking to my my co-hosts here don't really remember it, but you know, I don't I don't know when early voting per se started in this country. We've had absentee voting for probably in some form or another, you know, almost since the beginning of the country, and for decades it has been a you know, a, uh, some, something you could do in many states, I, you know, in a few states, just if you want to. I think for a long time in most states, you had to at least have some sort of nominal excuse or something like that. But that was always a pretty small percentage of, of, uh, of votes. It tended to be uh, older people, people are traveling, stuff like that. Uh, but the, but what we now think of as early voting, this is something, this didn't exist when I was, uh, a kid or a young adult, you know, in the eighties, even the early nineties, it's a, it's a, it's a very new thing. So we have, uh, all these things to talk about. We were also just, we were also just chatting before we went on the air about, you know, what's going to happen, right? Which is... <laughs> 
<laughs> which is really the kind of the big thing that everybody wants to talk about or dreads talking about. But it is, uh, you know, for those of us who certainly for those of us who live and breathe politics, this is, you know, this has been what the whole thing has been about for four years. And one of the features of the Trump era is that it has politicized everybody. And that is one of the things that many people hate about it. Obviously, being involved in politics is a great thing. You know, we want we want a citizenry as engaged in politics as possible. But there's also an exhaustion factor that everybody feels. Uh, some of that just because of the predatory, chaotic nature of Donald Trump and the fact that, you know, like an abuser in the household, he's the president. So we have to pay attention to what he does because he has the power. Um, but there's there, I think there is certainly a portion of the national population that they're, they don't care that much about politics normally. It's not a big part of their lives. But Trump has forced it to be a big part of, if not everyone's life, a lot of people's lives. And for a lot of people, that's exhausting. They want that to end. They want, they, they want, they want something like what we used to have. And we have a whole debate about, you know, can you really go back, blah, 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 blah. But a lot of people just want this to end. And even for people who are normally very involved in politics, there is just an exhaustion. It is exhausting. It is exhausting in the way that it is exhausting and more to live with an abuser. Because it's chaotic and it's predatory. And you don't, uh, you never know what's going to happen next. And to, and to expand to our, our national analogy... Some of us have much greater relative immunity to Trump's predation than others. But if you care about the country, you are, you are exposed to that bad acting. Um, before we get started, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, our great sponsor who has uh, been sponsoring us for uh, quite a while and quite a while longer than that. We've all been consumers of Grady's. Now, remember, Grady's has a special offer until November 3rd, which is you can get 25% off any order and as many orders as you would like until that day at Grady'sColdBrew.com. All you have to do is use the offer code TPM. It's great stuff. We love it. If you like our podcast, support our sponsor, all good stuff. Now, David, what are, what are we doing? What do we got? Yeah, there's not too many days to take advantage of that special promo, so got to act now. Um, well, like you said, Josh, we are in the final days of the campaign. I don't know. Everyone's stress levels are high. Anxieties are high. Kate, I wondered if we could just start with you. Just give kind of a global sense of, of the race, what you're kind of looking at, any indicators you're seeing that could point to things going one way or, or another. What, what should our listeners kind of be looking out for right now? 
I mean, to some degree, you know, the race has been somewhat calcified for a while. You know, there's an argument to be made that that's been true since January. There's another argument to be made that if that last debate wasn't going to move the needle, what would? Especially, you know, as Josh opened the show talking about that there's been a massive amount of the vote that's already banked. Um, So kind of, I mean, what I'm looking at now is polls like everyone else's. You know, there was an ABC Washington Post poll out this morning that showed Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin, you know, which is somewhat shocking. And, you know, maybe that should be taken as somewhat of an outlier, but that poll is considered, you know, top tier, gold standard. Um, And, you know, it might not be too far out of the realm of possibility. As you see, Wisconsin is just buckling under an explosion of COVID cases. Um, You know, so there's stuff like that that's still happening. And we're following things like the Trump campaign pulling out of ad buys in Florida, you know, focusing what little campaign cash they have left in the states that they maybe feel don't have such a uh, that have a less Republican electorate, so maybe are riskier for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, things in this final week, you know, are looking pretty much as bad for Trump as they have for weeks. And I think the big concern is the same concern that we've had for months, which is Trump will find a way to throw the case to the courts, which now will have Amy Coney Barrett on it, who you know, if her willingness to be part of um, Trump's parade, you know, to go up on the balcony and be essentially part of his a campaign ad that he cut is uh, any indication she would be pretty willing to go along with that. Um, and I think we saw the most ominous factor in that uh, bucket of things this week with uh, Brett Kavanaugh's opinion on a decision to curtail the counting of absentee ballots in Wisconsin that, um, you know, our colleague Tierney Sneed kind of laid out was riddled with mistakes, but also showed key, you know, he said the quiet part out loud. He said that mail-in ballots could flip an election as if those aren't valid election, valid votes that are part of the count that aren't flipping anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think from the perspective that if this election is, you know, allowed to go the way that it should with no, you know, last minute intervention by Trump with an assist from the courts, I'd say I feel pretty confident that things look good for Biden. And I would say that I feel kind of less existentially panicked about that court intervention possibility than I did say a few months ago, mostly because, you know, the polls are just looking good for Biden and good in places that count on election night. And, you know, the argument I've been making for a while is the less space and mushiness that the Trump campaign has to work with to sow doubts and to make claims that mail-in ballots or that some portion of the vote is invalid, the harder it's going to get them to be to drag the institutional actors that need to be complicit along with them. And I think if, you know, Biden wins in places that count quickly, you know, North Carolina, Georgia, got Texas, that is going to make it much, much harder for Trump to pull off the, the chicanery he would need to to hijack the election. There's, there's a sort of a related a related point to that, which is that, you know, it shouldn't matter 
but we're dealing with corrupt players in many cases. And so it does matter. And, and that is that no one wants to be on the side of a loser. I think there are players who are totally ready to help bring Trump over the finish line, thinking primarily about the Supreme Court. But no one wants to kind of get dirty like that if he's if he's done. You know, if, if, if he's losing Florida the night of, losing North Carolina, maybe neck and neck in Texas, there's it is going to be much, much less likely that the court is going to stick its neck out trying to kind of, you know, toss a bunch of votes in the, in the Midwest. Um, so it all kind of, it all kind of flows together. Josh, I'm curious, um, speaking of the, the Wisconsin ruling and Brett Kavanaugh's error filled, uh, you know, opinion, he cited Bush v. Gore, right. As a, I guess, part of making his argument that there can't be election night chaos and all this stuff. And right. he, he made some, some, declaration that um, states must be allowed to certify their election results the night of. And that's something that just doesn't happen basically anywhere, right? I mean, it's the cable networks, the news organizations yeah, that it, it make a projection. It literally never happens. I mean, so, and, yeah. And speaking of, you know, you started TPM in the way, you know, in the Bush v. Gore era. I don't know. What what was your reaction to just seeing that cited as precedent, even even though when that ruling was made or that decision was made, I think the court was pretty explicit at the time. Like this shouldn't be used as precedent in future cases, right? It was, yeah, it was, it was, was seen sort as of, kind of a, a singular It was part and parcel of the very iffy and uh, in many ways, I think illegitimate uh, uh, conclusion of that case that in what I think is is unprecedented in, in American history, as you say, the decision actually says, this will not be precedent. This is a one-off, don't bring it up again. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, you know, kind of <laughs> thing. I think I, I don't follow these things close enough to really know for sure, but I think it has nonetheless been invoked a couple times uh, since in in the last twenty years, I don't think as as something that controls a decision, but as just as maybe as what is some is what's called dicta, you know, kind of when they're little brainstorming on the side that doesn't have that doesn't have a uh, that doesn't control an actual an actual legal question. Uh, but this brings up so much stuff about Kavanaugh. He's you know, Kavanaugh's a Republican political operative, a lawyer Republican political operative who they, you know, spent a decade or so sort of scrubbing up and laundering into being a future Supreme Court justice, because that was always kind of, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, he was always sort of on that path. He had all the sort of the pedigree, had the Federalist Society stuff. Um, all the kind of getting his spurs in Republican politics. But he was one of the lawyers working on Bush v. Gore. So even that, it's a little, it's it's not exactly inappropriate or exactly, or like, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the equivalent of needing to recuse yourself. But like, it's, it's probably unwise for a, a justice to, to reference a case that he was, that he was a part of as a, as a, as a litigant. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the big, the big thing to me there with that, with that ruling was, you know, the errors and misrepresentations are very bad. And, and, uh, it, I, our colleague, as you said, our, our colleague Tierney had a great uh, piece going through all those things. But the big thing to me was not the errors. It was the clear statement that he is on board with Trump's basic premise, which is that mail-in votes and votes that are not counted on election night <clears throat> are inherently suspect and that the court has good reason and standing to limit their use because of this idea that, I mean, either because they might be phony or the, the circular reasoning, people might think they're phony. It'll, it'll, it will raise doubts and all, all this kind of nonsense. Basically, that he's on board with the Trump line. And that, that's the thing that matters. Um, and that's why, as Kate says, if it's close and they can, they can wedge their way in, they will wedge their way in for Trump and try to stop the vote counting. Josh, can you take us through your piece just kind of related to this uh, that you put up this morning? I mean, you kind of made that case too, right? Don't let it be close because, the, you know, the current Supreme Court is corrupt. Um, just take us through like what you what you wrote this morning on kind of what you were thinking through. Yeah, well, I was, you know, kind of thinking through the things we're talking about today, like what's going to happen and trying to think about the difference between their statistical probability and what seems likely in our sort of our our are imperfect, but but not non-existent uh, ability to kind of have a sense of what might happen in the future. But that's all. That also is in human terms that gets weighed against the stakes. Like I think if you if you were just kind of come into this as a disinterested party, um, someone from the outside, and you looked at this, you know, kind of just looked at the data, you say, man, Trump's toast he's he's it's going to be almost impossible for him to pull this off and i think that is a a pretty decent read of the data but the stakes are so high it's so catastrophic if we need to do four more years of this uh that you just can't you know you 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 can't have any sense of security and just kind of thinking about these two different kind of things and how they again the stakes and the probabilities and how how they play into each other um but to your point god i'm like mike pence here i gotta fly flying around <laughs> me um uh to your point it's like what kate said uh the court it is seems unquestionable to me that there are four justices on the court who will jump in and basically concoct a reason to help Trump, regardless of what it is, regardless of what the facts are, regardless of what kind of theory they need to come up with, they'll do it. And that's Alito, Thomas, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Barrett's already kind of told us through her pre-confirmation actions and, and one post-confirmation action what, you know, what the score is with her. Uh, Roberts, as we know, is is very uh, protective of the legacy of his court, you know, the court under his uh, chief justiceship. Uh, and he is, I think Roberts is more of an ideologue than a partisan. Uh, and those sometimes point in, in different directions, and that overlaps with his 
wanting to preserve the his reputation and the reputation of his court. So it's a little less clear what I think he would do. Although uh, I think most a lot of these pre um, a lot of these decisions we've had in the last few weeks, he's been there. You know, he's 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 been there with with the majority. Gorsuch, I I it I'm a little less clear, and that I think is less because I have some sense that he's more of a straight shooter. Just I have I have less of a read on him. There's at least some decisions where he seems a little more ideological than partisan. Uh, ideological, in what to my mind is a pretty bad way. Um, but there was a case just yesterday out of Minnesota, a Republican request to delay congressional election in the second district i think and gorsuch uh denied that request so there are like you know a few maybe silver linings or hints that um you know he wouldn't just play ball kind of with any partisan yeah. type of request or whatever but. yeah and, and i think there's some uh, there was another there have been a few non um non-election cases in the last like there was the year. lgbt LGBTQ protections where he sided, I think, with the liberals to uphold kind of anti-discrimination um, you know, yeah, protections. And, and if I recall, um, that was that was at least interpreted as there was he did it in a way that he advanced some broader kind of libertarian slash anti-regulatory sure. theory. Uh, so anyway, um, there's definitely for. I think in a pinch, they get one of those other two guys. Um, they'll make it happen. Uh, and so the key is, you just, as Kate said, you, can't, you just can't have it be close. You can't, you can't let them get into the conversation. And, uh, you know, and, and, and again, I think it's, it's not just in state by state. You need to, you need to kind of end the conversation in Florida early in the evening. And then... Those other states aren't going to matter as much. And again, no one wants to be with a loser. No one wants to be with a loser. Right. And I think it's, you know, part of the argument that I think is right, which is the don't let it be close. It's not just that we're kind of fighting to keep this out of the hands of a pretty blatantly corrupt Supreme Court. It's you also have to fight against all the other obstacles that Republicans have set up to make sure to make it as hard as possible for it to be a Biden blowout. And, you know, that's why that's why we're sitting here talking about, you know, a Biden win in Florida, a Biden win in North Carolina. And the reason we're not talking about, oh, a Biden win in Pennsylvania is because the Republican legislature there would not allow, you know, pandemic time expansion to allow for early counting. So we could know on election night. And that is the story with all these other states that we're probably going to be waiting on. Um, so, you know, you've got that in the mix. You've got the fact that in a lot of states, people are fighting against decades of voter suppression to try to get out there. The fact that the, the mail service has been sabotaged, which means people don't have a safe alternative and who are waiting out in pandemic conditions. You know, I think even if things go, you know, from a democracy standpoint and the best way they can. And if Biden wins big on election night and we don't have to fear what the Supreme Court would do, this election has just thrown into really stark relief that this, you know, it's not just Trump. This is a Republican Party 
that is hell-bent on keeping people from voting. Instead of expanding their ideas to appeal to a greater slice of the electorate, they're trying to prevent groups who don't usually vote from them vote for them from voting. They're trying to make it as hard as possible, as confusing as possible. They're trying to make it so that even if you do everything right, you still might not get your vote counted. And that, you know, that's something that should be infuriating to everyone. And I just think has to become more a part of the conversation that it's not even it's not even subtle anymore. We have one of our major parties is committed to keeping people from voting. And I know that's not a new thing, but the fact that we're sitting here talking about that Biden pretty much needs to win on election night to ensure that our democracy gets to keep being a democracy is you know pretty horrifying. I would say, you know, in some ways that is really a this site, this 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 operation we work for is about two weeks short of its 20-year anniversary. And in many ways, this is really the through line through the site's whole history. It, in, in the period of, you know, the period of history that it is, that it has been in operation. And also the subject matter that we have focused on. Now, as, as, as David said, uh, the site started during Bush v. Gore, which was... Not only does it capture, um, is one of the great moments of trying to prevent votes from being counted, it also is a key turning point in this whole story. These things go, go back before 2000, but it's different before 2000. Remember, quite apart from, from what ended up being decided in Florida... I don't remember the exact amount. I think uh, Al Gore got about a million more votes than uh, you know. It wasn't as it 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 wasn't it was closer than it was in 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 2016. Um, got about a million more votes. Maybe it was two million. I don't know. He got a lot. There was no question that uh, Gore got more votes than than Bush did, and that was a very big deal because it put. Republicans on to thinking it's going to be hard for us to be getting the most votes. So we really need to double down that the legitimacy is the Electoral College, something that we all knew about, but seemed like kind of just like a a sort of a vestigial part of our of our system. Uh, and we need to start limiting who can vote. And that is what the whole voter suppression thing is about. It is what the whole voter fraud thing is about. And there are numerous stories over the course of the last 20 years that we've been involved in that are about just that. These, these a, a concerted, consistent over time program of propaganda to set the stage for restrictions on voting. Voter ID is pretty widespread across the country now. That did not used to be the case. So there are all these things, and you know, one, one, of the, uh, one of the sort of biggest stories we were ever involved in back in 2006, 2007, 2008, that uh, U.S. attorney firing story. And, but what people forget is what was really going on there is those U.S. attorneys got chewed up 
in this in this propaganda effort about voter fraud because the word went out from the political appointees at the Department of Justice we need people to bring a lot of prosecutions for voter fraud to set the stage create the premise for further voting restrictions and some of them would not go along with it and they were fired so this is something that has been you know 2000 really was a turning point for this both because of what happened in that in that disputed election and what republicans drew from that from that result um and it has just been picking up a pace and, and like picking up the pace over these 20 years. And like so many other things with Trump, he brings it to a to an extreme cartoonish, like totally, you know, kind of like, oh, there's four million, uh, you know, fraudulent votes or, or, or whatever, you know, changes from time to time. Buses from New Hampshire or something. Yeah, right? buses like from New Hampshire. So, yeah, all the craziest stuff. But it is just a an extreme version of what it is deep-seated and persistent uh, Republican ideology at this point and Republican strategy. And I think, you know, if there if there's something that we can get out of, you know, presuming that Biden wins, if there's something we can get out of these four years, you know, one of my hopes is that we've had a more engaged citizenry than we're used to. And in large part, that's because Trump's, you know, corruption, Trump's kind of trampling of norms is so egregious and so out in the open that it grabs people's attention. And, um, you know, I think that has been a, a real noticeable shift. And I hope going forward that, you know, these decades of suppression that you're talking about, Josh, and, you know, suppression, especially of voters of color that goes back years and years and years in this country. I just hope that that's something, you know, that gets more attention going forward. We've kind of seen these uh, election lawyers for the Democrats come into prominence um, who are, you know, doing lawsuits left, right, and sideways to try to stymie this. But I also hope that you part and parcel with that, people start to realize that a lot of these voter suppression methods, they're basically all at the state level, which puts such more importance on not only waking up every presidential election, you know, on being invested in who your state representatives are and being invested in flipping legislatures and other things that, you know, Republicans have pretty much had a vice-like grip on for years and that Democrats have kind of not been part of the game. You know, I hope that's something that changes going forward. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, it's hard to um, David, can draw. I make, can I make one point about sure. that? Go ahead. Uh, you know, one point that's 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 very big is it it is it's not just waking up. It's waking up every two, you know, every two years. And it's waking up particularly in the most important two years. And, and you know, we have seen in Wisconsin, for instance, in 2018, uh, Democrats got the most votes in the state legislative 
uh, races. But not only did they not get a majority, the Republicans got a supermajority, which has basically meant that the governor, the Democratic governor there, is very hamstrung in, 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 in what he can do. And some of that is the sort of the rural, you know, concentration of, of Democrats in, in urban areas. But most of it is the state level districting. And the, that is also on the ballot in this cycle. So you have to, uh, you know, so uh, Democrats, they were woke, they were up, right? They were woken up in 2018, but it didn't matter because the, because the, because the apportionment uh, or rather the districting was so rigged that they could, they could win and win big and not only not win, but actually be down by supermajority levels. So that is why, you know, it is huge, huge, huge in in Wisconsin uh, uh, this time that you you at least get out of under that, and you have democracy in operation in these states, which is the sort of the baseline thing. And then yes, everybody people have to vote up, you know, people have to show up because you do have to get more votes. Um, but the whole thing can be the whole thing can be locked and rigged for a decade, right? If you're not careful. I mean, and, yeah. we're, and we've just reached the point where you can't, you just can't feign ignorance of what the Republicans are going to be like, you know, of, oh, well, maybe they'll do it fairly because exactly what you're saying, Josh. And we've seen multiple states where Democrats win the governor's mansion and the Republican legislature immediately strips the governor of all meaningful power. You know, I mean, and that's been true in almost every state that's split like that, especially during COVID times. You know, we've seen... um Governor Whitmer in Michigan having to basically face off in court against the Republican legislature who, you know, wanted to take away her power to declare an emergency, to make people wear masks, you know, to make her position basically toothless. And we've seen that, you know, over and over again. So I just, yeah, I just hope that this time where people are paying a lot of attention has brought all those little ways that Republicans have baked in their ability to be a party of the minority that's constantly in power. I just hope people have kind of become more aware of the the quiet, low-level ways that they do that. Yeah, that's yep. a good point. I mean, I was I was thinking it's hard to draw these kind of sweeping conclusions from our social media feeds, but um Josh, like you said, it does feel like Trump has politicized, uh, almost radicalized everyone to his, to the point where it's hard to swipe through Instagram, even, you know, which previously was nominally like photos of food and your mm-hmm. fun vacations and stuff, but it's all, I mean, it's all politics now. And I hope that that energy does continue after 2020. I hope in 2022 people are as engaged. It's hard to know, you know, what that will look like, but it does feel like, and Kate, I'm curious, you know, among your mm-hmm friends and family and and that, like whether you see just an increased interest in politics among kind of younger people, it feels like Mm -hmm. some of the early voting, younger people are turning out in much higher numbers than they did in 2016. And so it feels like, I don't know, there is a bit of an awakening on that level, but I'm curious Mm -hmm. what you've seen too. Well, I think a big piece of that is, you know, if you're a member of almost any minority group, Trump has insulted you personally. So it feels like there's the dehumanization that he has towards, you know, women, black people, um, immigrants, you know, disabled people. Exactly. The list goes on and on. And so I think it 
feels more personal than elections have passed. Um, but I also think young people, you know, looking at my little sister who's 18, she is so much more keyed in than I was at her age. And I think a big part of that is because things feel really dire right now. Um, you know, it, no matter what issue you're invested in, and I think young people especially are much, much wiser than the older generations on, for instance, um, you know, the pressing necessity of climate change legislation. Um, but any issues like that, Trump has just, you know, brought to the fore. And the part of what got him over the line in 2016, I think, is that he is so divisive that he engendered a, you know, a group of people who would die for him, you know, who cannot hear a word against him. And now this has been the upswell of the opposite of that. People who are sick of being, you know, insulted by him or seeing him, if you, you know, roll back anything that has any progressive stake. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've kind of, I was raised in a family of political junkies, so that's not too new, but I think the feeling of having a personal, very personal stake in it, um, that is something that has been true, I think, since 2016, and that people are kind of channeling into their vote, you know, whether it had been for the midterms or now, you know, it's all a, a direct knee-jerk reaction against Trump. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we can spend the last little bit of the episode looking at the campaign, sort of what's been going on on the trail. We've seen former President Obama have some spicy speeches uh, lately. And Kate, you wrote a fun piece yesterday on kind of what Trump's been doing on Twitter. He said things like, the fake news is all about COVID, 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 and it should be, uh, it should be illegal to interfere in an election by covering the coronavirus. Right. Or, <laughs> you know, there were a number of other tweets. Tell us about kind of what you've been seeing on his feed or, you know, even on the other side of the, you know, the Biden campaign, too, if anything has jumped out at mm -hmm. you. But I know you wrote the Trump story most recently. Right. So, yeah, Trump is kind of just crafting this alternate reality where he's winning. Um, and if you look down his Twitter, you know, it's a series of he'll cherry pick Trafalgar and Rasmussen polls, which, you know, um, have been consistently more GOP friendly than the main field. Uh, you have him encouraging people who have already mailed in their ballots to change their vote, <laughs> which right. is only possible at all in seven states. And it's pretty much a big pain in the ass in those seven states to do. And in, the, in those seven states, you can actually mm -hmm. do it on the basis of, hey, I changed my mind. I voted yeah. well. like not just like, oh, I turns out I want to vote in person or something. You can actually just say, I just I want to do something different. Yeah, from my cursory research. Yeah, that's what I saw. Um, but, you know, in a lot of those places, you have to go to your election office in person and, you know, things that people who mailed in their ballot were probably avoiding trying to do. Um, you know, so you you have that. Yeah, you have what DT you were mentioning about. Oh, we're about to turn the corner on COVID on November 4th. We will not be talking about this anymore, which I'm sure is you know quite comforting to people. But um, And that's almost like an admission that he's going to lose too, right? He's sort of saying like, when Biden wins, you know, 
we won't be focusing on how bad COVID is. Like, well, otherwise, I just don't see. I like the argument almost doesn't make sense. I, I wouldn't want to fancy myself a Trump interpreter, but <laughs> I think what he's saying is COVID is a media hoax. That's not right. a real thing that we won't be talking about anymore if I win, because the media is fabricating it to you know put holes Destroy in him. my to beat yeah. me. Yeah, presidency. exactly. Right. Um, right. So. Trump has always lived in a fact-optional world. That's not new, but right <laughs> That's now, a good way of putting it. <laughs> right now, he's just kind of looking for any any ray of hope for him right now and clinging to it. And then anything that any fact that gets in the way of that is is a lie, is an attempt by the media and Democrats to take down his candidacy. Um, you know, like they did in 2016, they did it again. Couldn't stop me then. You know, so. And for someone who proclaims to hate the media as ardently as he does, he is really excited about retweeting endorsements from, you know, the Washington Times or the or New the York Boston Post. Boston Herald, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's where Trump's at. And then, you know, something I'm really interested in from the Biden campaign now is I'm kind of fascinated with where they choose to send the principles in this last week, because, you know, when you're a campaign where you send your president and your vice presidential candidate is pretty much the most precious thing you can do from here on out from a time where, you know, it's, as we said, a lot of the votes baked in, even in a normal, not so heavy mail in year, it's hard to move the needle in the last week. Cause usually, usually there's just not that many people who haven't made up their mind yet. So you know, where you send your main attractions, that is your most valuable resource. And that is how, you know, you might be able to spark these final days enthusiasm. You know, if someone's like, oh, he's coming to my state, you know, maybe that'll push someone to vote. But, you know, I'm particularly interested in Texas because we've talked about this before. Texas is Democrats, great white whale and constantly, you know, disappointing them. But this year, you know, just before we started going on the pod, the Cook Political Report reclassified Texas as a toss-up. And that is just nuts to me. And I think to some degree in Texas and in these other southern states, there is a matter of a very diverse electorate that hasn't been tapped into, hasn't been reached, hasn't been convinced in a way that a lot of these states in the industrial Midwest, that's a different game. You know, that's a game of trying to get Obama Trump supporters back to Biden. But somewhere like Texas, I think you've just got a lot of untapped potential. And that's exacerbated by the fact that you have a lot of people moving there who tend to be younger, who tend to be people of color. Um, so you know, we just saw Kamala Harris announce that she's going to Texas um, this Friday. They're doing like a bus tour kind of thing right. across the state, right? And I think, you know, I think you need to be careful. If you're the Biden campaign, you don't want to commit the fatal sin of, sin of hubris right now, right? You don't want to pull a, a Bush Cheney and send Cheney to Hawaii in the last weeks of the election and then get humiliated. Well, and Bush to California. Right. They right. sent Bush to California at the end right. in 2000. So and exactly. And you don't you don't want that to be a stain on your campaign. And I mean, imagine, imagine they send Biden to Texas and then he loses narrowly to Trump. You know, he loses like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I mean, you're going to that is not a story that you want in the books if you're the Biden campaign. But all that being said, I just think the polls in Texas and in Georgia, that is just really fascinating to me. And I am, 
that's something I'm going to be really looking out for to see if in where they send their people in these final days. And, you know, you can only maybe extrapolate so much from that. But if you're sending Harris or Biden to Texas, to Georgia, to South Carolina in these final days, that shows you something. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. I think, you know, one thing, and, and I, I remember, I, I can't remember whether I wrote this, I mean, since it was the first few days of the, of the site, I can't remember if I wrote this uh, in TPM or one of the other places I wrote for it at the time, but there is, there is a big part of this, and this was my read, I think correct read, on why they sent Bush to California in in at the in the last couple of days in 2000 that you're trying to psych out the other side you know you're you're looking at the polls you think it's tied it's not tied we know that we're about to win big because that's the only thing that makes sense about us sending you know sending the principal to cal you know to to a very uh a a very democratic state and even and, and it's important to recognize california was not as democratic a state then as 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 it is now um but there is this there's all this kind of psyops going on um and yeah i don't know how much of that it is there's also another aspect of it which is you maybe you don't think you're going to win texas but if you can kind of force if you can keep trump tied down there spending money there maybe make him spend, you know, send Pence or Trump there, then that may actually help you win uh, Florida or North Carolina or Georgia. So there's all these kind of weird mix of like, you know, four-dimensional chess and psyops uh, going on there. And the other thing is, you know, I am, as, as, as I think you are, Kate, I'm pretty confident Biden's going to be the next president. I am I think it is likely, but I'm I'm much less certain that the Democrats will win the Senate. Now, if the if Biden wins and the Democrats do not win the Senate, you know the predation will end, the bad the active bad stuff will end, and that is a huge fucking deal, a huge huge deal. But there will be no new legislation. There will be uh, you know there will be no expansion of the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary, uh, you know, ending the filibuster won't even matter because, you know, it won't, it won't be, it, it, it won't be relevant. Uh, the Supreme Court might uh, strike down Obamacare and it won't be fixable at the legislative level. So if you just get Biden and not the Senate, the whole thing is, is um, you know, to a significant extent, sort of, you know, kind of dead in the cradle. Um, it'll, you know, it will be a huge thing just not having Trump being predatory for four more years. So big, that's a, that's a big, big deal. Uh, but the Senate is really, really critical. And you also, you know, you need these structural reforms like, like ending the filibuster, like expanding the court, like if possible, although it's, you know, it's significantly more difficult, um, adding D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, all these kind of things. And the, the, 
the other the other sort of secondary reason that that is important is that if you do have a Biden presidency that is basically a running standoff between a Republican Senate and Biden, not only will no good stuff happen, but you will continue to have the kind of stalemate, nothing gets done, I don't like everybody arguing situation that creates a very ripe situation for the Republicans to come back into power. You really need, and and this is you know this is how democracy is supposed to work, that you have one you have one party, they get they get real power, the ability to actually do things. They do their things, and then two and four years later, the Republicans say, "Okay, you did your things, and we like the change, and we're gonna we're gonna keep you in office." Or, you know what? You did your things, and it was not good, so you're done. Uh, that is really key. That's that is that is democracy. That's democratic accountability. So that, I guess my my, my point here is, it's not just that you want the good things to happen, and it'll be bad if the good things can't happen. There are long term political consequences of having everything kind of locked up in stalemate, as in many ways they were for much of the Obama presidency after the first couple of years. So the Senate is really, really critical. Not to, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead, finish. No, no, go I'm ahead, sorry. go I'm ahead. I was going to say, not to mention that we're not getting any kind of stimulus package if there's a Republican majority Senate, or at least not one that's going to staunch the bleeding that we're facing right now. Um, you know, we've kind of watched that tango go on for the past few months with uh, Pelosi trying to work with Mnuchin and Meadows blowing things up and Trump blowing things up and McConnell not even getting involved. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, McConnell adjourned the Senate uh, until after the election. Right. So it's not there's nothing imminent. And I think you're right. If Biden wins, nothing, you know, it's going to go back to the austerity we can't be spending money. The deficit is out of control. Like we can't be passing this debt on to our grandkids. Like you already have sort of, it's already happening. It's already starting to happen. And meanwhile, you know, tens of millions of Americans are without work facing hunger and poverty and the risk of losing their homes and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I think it is quite likely that not only will you have no good stimulus, you will have no stimulus. Yeah. Because if, if McConnell is in charge of the Senate it, it's clear that there are 20, 25 senators who are basically no stimulus at all. Absolutely none. You know, we will not do anything. We're done with that. Uh, and it is, it is almost, it is, it flies in the face of everything we know about McConnell, everything we know about his legislative strategies and histories, that he is going to allow a bill to come up that is basically a you know, a, 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 a bipartisan bill, largely Democrats, but a significant number of Republicans. So a Democratic president can can sign it. There, there's, there's just no way. There's no way, especially, especially because we've, you know, we've seen this movie before. He will know that the worse things are for the next two, you know, for the following two years, the better shot he has at you know, adding to his, um, you know, a- adding to his majority. As simple as that. It's, it's, I can almost guarantee you there will be no more stimulus 
if 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 Mitch McConnell uh is is uh you know is still running the senate ironically except if trump is president in trump you know there's actually a chance then uh but him and biden no way right and i think in some ways you know the senate almost requires even more kind of eagle-eyed watching than the presidency because a lot of the states we've been talking about you know the texas the georgia for that's really uh, exciting and attention grabbing because if Biden wins those states, his path to 270 is you know massively expanded, and that takes a lot of pressure off places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the usual suspects. But with the Senate, we have a lot of these races that are similarly within one or two points. You know, uh, Georgia, Iowa, Montana. You know, you've got places where. Even Minnesota, Tina Smith is up by only one per, one point. The uh, I, Democratic I think that was Senator kind of there. an outlier poll, though. Was it? Yeah, I think five thirty eight has her with like over ninety percent of okay, gotcha. it, but that's good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but I think the the what I mean there is that you know Biden could lose Texas and could lose Georgia and could lose some of these super close races and still win. In the Senate, there are not. Democrats have a much better playing field right now than Republicans, undoubtedly, and a lot of better pickup opportunities. But it doesn't mean quite so much for, you know, a senator to come close, but not to win. That's still a Republican seat. Um, and right now, even though Democrats definitely have a better map and less and fewer hard seats to, de- to defend than Republicans do, right now Democrats have 47 seats. So, you know, bare majority, that's a three-seat net gain would also probably have to compensate for Doug Jones. So, you know, I all that to say, I very much agree with Josh. And if there's one thing we've kind of learned from the Trump years, it's that whichever party holds the Senate is massively powerful, especially in remaking the judiciary. And that that's something that even winning the House doesn't matter. Nothing you can do about it. So there's not this, this is another reason, I think, you know, we talk about the psyops at the end of the campaign. The big th- the thing that I think Republicans need to worry about, and I can guarantee you are worried about, that if Republicans have the idea, Trump's done, he's, he's toast, he can't win, you will have a significant, and significant in this case can just be a couple percentage points, you can have a significant dropout in participation by Republicans. And ironically, this is this, you know, one of the things, one of the things we are going to find out about is uh, Democrats disproportionately are voting early, Republicans disproportionately seem to be, you know, ready for same day, same day and or in person voting. Uh, And that you know, we don't know quite what's going to happen there. That does leave you with a situation where a lot of the Democratic votes banked. Uh, and the good thing for Democrats is that means you have a lot of a lot of resources relative to a relatively small number of people to get moving on Election Day. The reverse is the case with Republicans. And you can just have a drop off at the last minute. There's a lot of people out there. They're there for Trump. They don't really care about like you know Susan Collins or uh, or maybe one of those Republicans in Georgia or uh, maybe that guy up in Alaska. You can have a kind of a drop off where suddenly lots of Republicans lose, 
and and you end up with like you know the democrats having 53 or 54 seats in 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 the senate i'm not saying that's likely at all i'm saying it is possible in this kind of election where it really looks like maybe your vote doesn't matter if you're a Republican uh, uh, voting for Trump. You know, in theory, that might also mean for Democrats, their votes, you know, don't matter. But not mattering feels a lot better when you're winning than when you're, than when right. you're losing. So I think that is a big part of basically Republicans acting like, yeah, we got this. Trump's going to win. It's all going to be awesome. Right. And I think that's an important point as well, because we've been kind of talking in terms of Democrats getting a bare majority. Right. But and, you know, eliminating the filibuster, which I think if Biden wins, he's going to be under monumental pressure to do, will help Democrats still be effective, even if they only have, you know, 50 seats plus the White House or 51 seats. But not every Democratic senator is you know, progressive. There are, you have the, the Kristen Cinemas and the John Testers and people who represent redder states who maybe wouldn't want to come along with uh, expanding the Supreme Court or any of those more progressive policies that Biden's going to be really, I think, very much shouted to do by the progressive wing who's going to demand some repayment for their, for its support. Um, which meet all that to say that the bigger the majority the easier it is for Democrats to get progressive legislation passed while also freeing up the cinemas and the testers to say no to votes they have to say no to in order to, you know, retain their seats as a Democrat in a much redder or much more purple state. So, you know, it's definitely all about the Senate. A majority, I think, would be enough even just just getting three seats, getting to 50, I think would be enough. But, you know, the bigger the majority is, I think the easier for uh, a Biden and administration to get progressive legislation across without kind of having to kowtow to the more moderate, more conservative wings of the, the Senate caucus. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that feels like a good place to leave it for the week. Yeah. Well, remember that uh, Josh Marshall podcast, that Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can find them at Grady'sColdBrew.com. They have a special offer now, 25% off through next Tuesday on, uh, on any and all orders, 25% off. Just use the promo code TPM. And again, that's Grady'sColdBrew.com. All right, Josh and Kate, good to chat. Good to talk to you as always. Yep, All right. And this most monumental of weeks. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Talk to you next Hang week. In there. Yep. Bye. 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 Bye.